0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, it is a privilege for me to be here this morning to share with you. Uh, just say hello from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary down the road. Um, <clears throat> now, I will say this. Um, I am, as as Kevin mentioned, an assistant professor there. I teach Old Testament and Hebrew, uh, which... I apologize if I throw in a few <laughs> in uh, some of those. Every once in a while, it just happens. I don't mean to. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, every time I, that I have a chance, uh, I do want to say thank you. Uh, you really have, really have no idea how much a congregation like this, filled with people like you, uh, means to someone like me. Uh, I mean, I worship in a local congregation week after week after week, but uh, my ministry is primarily to those who are studying to be pastors and missionaries uh, and to work as music pastors and youth pastors and college pastors uh, all across the world. And a lot of the time, I don't get to see where they all go or even where they're from. And so um, I thank you. I thank you for being the congregation that you are and trusting the Lord that you have. The other reason I say thank you is because without you, um, there would not be a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, the seminary itself, the tuition, the vast majority of it uh, is paid by, by you, by Southern Baptist churches across uh, this country. And uh, my wife, of course, is very thankful for that because without Southwestern Seminary, I wouldn't have a job. Um, So I'm thankful for that, but far more than that, I just wanted to let you know, it is not unappreciated. It does not go unnoticed. Uh, We at Southwestern, we're very aware of the fact that it's because of you and it is for you that we exist so, thank you very much for your contribution to my ministry, uh, putting food on the table for my family, and I do want you to know that you can't possibly imagine the impact that it makes on the world around us, not just here in Texas, uh, in this area, but, I mean, literally, honestly, all over the globe. So, thank you very much. Um, I want to say a couple of things about myself. There are some exciting things happening at Southwestern Seminary, and I invite you to look at some of those things. The one thing that I'll mention, uh, we are having a Dead Sea Scroll exhibit uh, starting in July and running through February, and uh, part of the reason that I mention that is because I will be involved in some way uh, in the exhibit. Uh, Southwestern itself was able to acquire some fragments, and I'm uh, working on a couple of those, deciphering what they say and how they compare to other texts that we have The Dead Sea Scrolls themselves are over 2,000 years old, so they are incredibly important for understanding the Bible, how it was transmitted, how it was preserved, and authenticating the authenticity of the Word that we read. Uh, So you can rest assured that what you have in uh, your hands is, in fact, the Word of God and that it comes from when we expect it to. This book is thousands of years old, and we can confirm it. Uh, the other thing before I really get rolling here is um, just to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm actually, I'm originally from, uh, do I dare? I'm from Arkansas, so <laughs> I don't know what, right? So maybe I should just, you know, pack up and leave now. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, my father was actually born in Fort Worth, and, uh, but then moved up to Arkansas. Uh, I was born at a young age. So it makes sense, right? Um, in Little Rock, so I could be close to my parents. And uh, from there, I had this, my own faith journey, uh, eventually found my way out to North Carolina and did some uh, master's work and PhD work there, and then have been at Southwestern for six years. Uh, I have been married for almost 14. My wife, Janita, that's her dad is John, and her mother is Ernita, so put those together and you get Johnita. Um, my daughter's name is Joshita. No, not really. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That would be terrible. Um, no, her name is Brooke. She will turn eight on the 4th of July. So we're all very excited about that. She gets fireworks every year uh, for her birthday. Uh, she's all girl, all pink. She loves to read. She sits around and reads all the time. Uh, loves to uh, tell stories, listen to stories, all those good things. Uh, My older son, he is, he just turned, what did he just turn? Six, yeah. He just turned six. He's all boy, wants baseball, gymnastics, tumbling, karate, kicking, right? All boy stuff all the time. And my youngest is three. He just turned three. That's Luke. Uh, My second is Seth. Luke just turned three and he's just happy to be around, right? I mean, he's just smiling, except when he's not, in which case, he does this thing right here. His jaw gets really square, and his lip comes straight out. I mean, the others weren't able to do that. They're like, "Uh and he makes moaning sounds like that. So otherwise, it's just awesome. So that's that's my three-year-old. They are the better part of my life. So It gives you a sense of who I am, I'm not exactly sure what that says about me, but uh, we are going to take a look this morning at the Old Testament. So in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to take us on a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament. Fasten your seatbelts, it will be fast, I will be throwing out names and passages and hopefully not too much, but uh, we will go through quite a bit, so take some notes, you can work your way through it again later. Um, I'm going to start off by one particular scene. I think there is one scene in the history of Israel that helps us get a grasp of what this book is about. So I want you to imagine with me for a minute. Uh, any of you remember the old movie Red Dawn? You may remember Red Dawn? Anybody remember the Soviet Union? <laughs> right? It's been a while now, but uh, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, some of you remember it quite well. And uh, it was the, uh, I mean, it was the ultimate bad guy. It was the arch enemy of the United States of America. Everything that we stand for as Americans, the Soviet Union was opposed to. We love freedom. They love control. We love capitalism. They love communism. Uh, we love uh, liberty, personal responsibility, uh, we love progress in that sense. In America, you can accomplish the American dream, which is not earned by sitting on your laurels, but is work, earned by hard work, smart investments. In the USSR, the government dictates everything that happens. You have no rights, no rules. Uh, there is no progress. It's a completely different world. And In the movie Red Dawn, the USSR actually invades America. Now, imagine if the story had ended differently. Imagine if the story had ended with the USSR, this communist nation, taking over in the United States. And everything that we value, and everything we find valuable, was taken away from us. Our family was separated. Our values of freedom snuffed. Liberty gone. Our homes taken away. The government comes and takes every bit of it. Every road is theirs. Every house is theirs. Everything is theirs. Everything that we know and imagine and love I mean uh, the Soviet Union was atheist. Atheistic through and through it. That was part of the communism. Our churches, our families, our work, our homes, all gone. What would you do? How would you respond? This is the question. And then would you ask the question, and it's a fair question to ask, where is God? Where is he? I mean, he has let this atheist empire conquer us where is God this is the question that Israel faced in the exile everything that they knew was gone their relationship to their God well his temple destroyed their land conquered by a bunch of people who worshipped Marduk and all of his little buddies how could God let this happen But you know what? It wasn't a surprise to them. It was something that had already been forecasted in the days of Moses himself. Toward the end of Moses' life, after he had gone through the deliverance from Egypt, after they had crossed through the sea with the waters building up as a wall on both sides, after they had made their way, their incredible deliverance by the Lord, and they had wandered down to Sinai, they had encountered the Lord there, where The sky filled with dark, thick smoke and the flashes of light and the ground itself shook at the coming of the Lord. They had been there. Moses had gone up in order to meet with the Lord and the Lord had given Moses his instructions. They had that law at Sinai, a crucial moment in the history of the world and an important portion of of this book. And they had come down from Sinai and they had wandered into the wilderness. They had come up to the land which God Himself had promised them and they spied it out and they said, It is awesome, right? Like Luke would say. Uh, it was awesome. But, but, you know, there are these really big dudes there. I mean, they are, they've obviously been hitting Gold's Gym, right? And they walk around like this. And we are like grasshoppers before them. So they are the masters and we are the grasshopper. And there's no way we can get in there. I mean, they will, they, will, they will destroy us. So God says, fine, you won't go. I won't go with you. And he lets them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The whole generation gone. And then it's at this point after the 40 years when they stand on the eastern side of the Jordan River, looking over into the land that God had promised, that Moses says to them these words in, chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And some of this I'll uh, abbreviate a bit. But starting in verse 2, Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh and all his officials in all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. During the forty years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out nor did the uh, the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine nor other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. And then when you reached this place, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and all the king of Bashan, came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Carefully, verse 9, carefully follow the terms of this covenant, so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders, officials, all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives and the aliens living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You're standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as His people, the people of God, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. Um, Now, he goes on in verse 19, and he says, uh, When such a person... This one who turns their heart away from God. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and and therefore, therefore thinks, well, I'll be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him and the Lord will blot out his name under heaven. Now, verse 22, your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. But what is he talking about here? Exile. He's talking about that day in which Israel is destroyed. He says the whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Admon Zobaim, which the Lord overthrew in his fierce anger. All the nations were like, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because the people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods he didn't know, gods he had not given them. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. Right? This is, it's not a surprise. This exile, the day in which everything is overturned. Things that are up become down. Things that are down become up. And why did it happen? Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord. What they experience is death, exile, and curse. But you know, this isn't the first time that that's happened. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In the beginning, God creates, well, everything. And he sets out in his creation to prepare it for human habitation, for us to live in it. So all these good things that the Lord does, right? Right? It starts off. It's dark. It's underwater. No plants. No animals. Not very good for any of us to live there, right? I tried this in the front. We'll see how this goes. Okay. So, if you can imagine, if the Lord left it the way that it was, it would be very difficult for us. And this particular sermon would sound something like this. Blip, 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 blip. Blip. Nah, it didn't work. Okay. No, I tried. Um, <clears throat> right, because we'd all be okay. Underwater, get it? some, yeah, exactly. Thank you, thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. All right. So instead of this whole thing going blah 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 blah, 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 blah. instead God makes it where there's no water, there's light instead of darkness, there's vegetation. In fact, these beautiful trees that grow all kinds of fruit, and you can eat it, which is always good, and then. You have all the animals, they populate everything. They're up in the sky, they're in the waters, they're creeping around along the ground, they're beasts of the field, these livestock. God prepares all this, he sets it there in the land and then he makes a very special place. It's a little garden that he decides to plant and he puts the man there. Now, the man has everything he could ever possibly want but there's one thing that's not good and why is this? Well, because God had made a particular blessing. He said, be fruitful and multiply fill the land, and subdue it. Well, Adam is by himself. And multiplying and being fruitful, he cannot do on his own. He surveys all the animals, and that doesn't help. So he needs a helper. He needs a suitable helper. So the Lord makes for him a woman. And thankfully, that play works in English. So you have man and woman, right? In Hebrew, it's ish and isha which is the feminine form. So that's actually what he says. He said, she shall be called Isha because she came from Ish. So he names her woman. And they have everything that you could ever possibly imagine. They have blessing, God's blessing. They have a land, a place that has been perfectly prepared for them. And they have life in the presence of the Lord. But they forsake all of this. There's a serpent, um, an unusual, crafty fellow, who uh, tempts Eve, shows them about this one thing. God tells them one thing. Don't eat from the tree of this, uh, this the fruit from this one particular tree. Looks like a tree, doesn't it? Branches? <laughs> <And> <laughs> okay, so don't eat from that. And that one thing, there it is. I mean, eating fruit, good for you, right? Apple a day keeps the doctor away. So not fruit. Fruit's not bad. Okay, kids, fruit's not bad. Um, it's, the, it's this particular wine. God says, don't eat from it. He gives them a direct divine commandment. There it is. And what do they do? They eat it. Now, as a result of their eating, do they have blessing? You may answer, please. No, what do they get instead? Curse. Do they have life? No. What do they get instead? Death. Do they have land? No. What do they get instead? Exile. Right? Exile. What had happened with Adam and Eve is what will happen with Israel. Now, what is the answer to the problem? How do we ever get back to that place of life, to that place of blessing, to that place of belonging of land how do we return well the first thing that God does is um he decides to start over okay step number one start over with the flood God sends the flood and he wipes out all the people everybody except for one guy one righteous guy who walks with God so maybe if we start over with a different first guy it'll work so the flood comes, the waters rise, everything dies, except for Noah and those that are preserved with him. Noah gets off the ark and he starts very well. He makes a sacrifice to the Lord, acknowledging the Lord's provision for him. And then the blessing is renewed and a covenant is made. And a sign is put off in the sky, the sign of a bow, which is ironic, right? We usually think of bow, we think of the rainbow. No, it's a bow, right? A bow, that is, it's a symbol of his strength not warm fuzzies I know I'm sorry there's a it's an irony God says I will not judge you by water I will put my bow the symbol it's like putting a big massive sword in the sky I'm not going to kill you though I could right that's that's what the rainbow is which doesn't really I don't know it's not as appealing as like a leprechaun with a pot of gold but sorry uh, that, that is what it's talking about. So you have this uh, this rainbow he puts off into the sky. And then what Noah does, interestingly, interestingly enough, sounds a lot like what kind of the Lord did in Adam and Eve. Noah plants a vineyard, and then he partakes of the fruit. Right, He gets drunk on the wine. His nakedness is exposed, and a curse ensues. So if you thought, well... Adam and Eve, you know, Adam started off innocent, so maybe we just need a new, a new start. Okay, let's start with a righteous guy, Noah. It still doesn't work. The same pattern of fall recurs with Noah. So then, where does the solution lie? Well, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to Sinai. And here's why. Because at Sinai, those things that we talked about, blessing and land, and life, they're all promised in the covenant that God makes with Israel. Uh, If you read Leviticus 18, he says, those who do these commands shall live. So all you got to do is obey, right? That's it. Just obey and you shall live. Furthermore, you look at Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy, uh, there at the end, uh, 26, and then after that, you have these blessings. If you do this, if you obey what God says, here's what he will do. Blessing, 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 blessing. blessing. He will give you land. He will give you offspring. He will give you long life in the land. He will make everything you touch turn to gold, more or less. But if you don't obey, well, then you get twice as many curses. And eventually, it leads to exile. So if you want blessing, life, land, well, that comes through Sinai. And at first, you know what? At first, it actually seems to work. If you read Numbers 9 and 10, what you'll find is that the people they do really well. There's this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, and it moves around. It's the Lord's, it's the symbol of the Lord's presence with them. And as this cloud moves or the fire moves, People of Israel are is supposed to follow it. And if you read it, that's what they do. Cloud moves, they move. cloud stops, they stop. If the cloud stops for a day, they stop for a day. If the cloud stops for 40 days, they stop for 40 days. But when the cloud moves, they move. In fact, the way that it says it is that the sons of Israel kept the charge of the Lord. It says it twice there. What does this mean? It means that at first, it looks like the law is going to work. If you just obey the law, what Sinai commands, then you get blessing, you get life, you get land. So then the children of Israel, they march up to the promised land. And they send some spies in, in order to go check it out, right? So they're going into the land, and they're checking it out. And they're like, yeah, it looks good, this looks good, this looks great. But there are these big people there, and we are... Like grasshoppers before them. So they come back and they give a bad report. Now, this is Numbers 14. And what the Lord does is so instrument, it's so key. When they come to Him, the sons of Israel, and they give the report, the Lord responds by saying, How long do I have to put up with these people? How long will they test my patience? how long and here's the key how long will they not believe me how long will these people go on without faith right it's the it's the question of faith that's an instrumental little point to make it's not a question of obedience Actually, God doesn't even say, how long will they not say, do what I tell them to do? How long will they not sacrifice the sacrifices I told them to make? No, no, no. He says, how long will they not believe me? Right Now, as we fast forward through that wilderness generation, they all die because of their unbelief. Moses himself, Moses and Aaron, they also die. And if you look at it, it's also because of unbelief, because you did not treat me as holy in the sight of all the people, uh, to. Because you did not believe to treat me wholly in the sight of all the people, therefore Moses and Aaron will die without entering into the land. Now, as we move into the days of Joshua, so we've got Moses. We, we still have a problem here. We still have death. We still have curse. We still have exile. We move into the days of Joshua. And what you'll notice in the days of Joshua, there's a lot of obedience. There's, they celebrate the Passover. Uh, the Lord says, set up a memorial stone, and they do. God says, all the men, circumcise yourselves, and they do. Um, so that's, that's a lot of obedience, okay? That's a lot of obedience. Um, <clears throat> they do all of this that they're commanded to do. God says, okay, I want you to walk around Jericho a few times, once, twice. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Day after day, keep going. Now, blow some trumpets, Okay? And they do, and they win, right? So there's all this obedience. The naked comes along, and he, he violates the Lord's, uh, the ban, what's called the harem. Um, sorry about that. <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, <clears throat> the harem, this is the ban. That is, this entire place is devoted to destruction. It belongs to the Lord, and he can't take anything. Well, he gets a few things that don't belong to him. He wanders back. Uh, and it results in Israel's defeat, right? Israel is defeated. When they find out, they take Achan, they take his belongings, they take his family, they take everything that is his, all of it, stoning and fire, right? It's called purging. That's what it mean. Purging sin from the camp. They take it really seriously when there's failure. Now, as a result of this obedience, even when, when there's sin, they purge it result of this, they enter into the land, but not all is well in Israel, <laughs> poet and didn't know it, make rhyme all the time, um, <clears throat> when they get there, and they begin to conquer the land, then you move into the days of Judges, and what you find with Judges, okay, if this is the book of Joshua, right, here's the book of Joshua, things are going up, in fact, Joshua 21, 43 through 45, it says, and the Lord gave them uh, rest from all their enemies on all sides. The Lord did not fail to do any of the good words that he had spoken to them. So it's going up, 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 up. You get to the book of Judges and it goes way down. Uh, they fall into all kinds of moral depravity. There's all kinds of ambiguity. You don't, even, you don't know who's right, what's right, who's wrong, what's wrong, who's doing what. Is Gideon a good guy? Seems to be. And then he creates an ephod that everybody worships. Right? That doesn't exactly sound like a good guy to me. Is Samson a good guy? Well, he walks around with prostitutes, and well, that doesn't really sound like a great guy to me, but then he delivers the people from Philistines. Then you get to the end of the book. The end of the book is horrible. Uh, it's Sodom and Gomorrah on steroids. I mean, it, it, the, the depravity intensifies where this Levite, as a concubine, she's beaten. Abused all night long, she ends up dead on his doorstep. He comes out the next day and says, hey, what is this? You know, come on now. Chops her into 12 pieces, sends her out into the tribes. They decide to destroy all Benjamin because of this. Breaks out a civil war. They almost completely devastate the tribe. In order to ensure that the tribe continues, they go and kidnap women from another place and bring them in. I mean, not exactly the most glorious picture, but there's this little refrain that occurs at the end of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in those days. Aha, there you go. All we need is a king, right? So if we've got, if we've got curse, exile, and uh, death, maybe, maybe a king will come along and fix this. So comes Saul. How does Saul do? He starts off really well, but he cannot listen to prophets. And so he doesn't listen to Samuel, kingdom is taken away from him. David comes along. David rocks, right? He does extremely well, man after God's own heart. God establishes establishes a covenant with him about building a temple. His his reign will last forever. And then almost immediately after that, David decides to commit adultery and murder. So, okay, that's not the guy, right? Each one of these, this is part of what Samuel is showing us. You can have a king, but he has to be more than a king he even has to be more than David Solomon comes along and all these promises that God made about building a temple Solomon builds a temple but he has a hard time listening to Deuteronomy 17 he multiplies wives horses and money which disqualifies him so knock him off you go through each of the kings after this and what you see is none of them measure up so it leads into exile Well, now, how do you get out? How do you get out of exile? Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is what Moses himself says will happen in the future, after the exile. It says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, according to everything that I command you today, Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the sky, from from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all your soul and live the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all His commands that I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands, and the fruit of your womb, the young of the livestock, crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as He delighted in your fathers if you obey the Lord your God and keep His commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law That turn and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He speaks of a future day. Exile that everything's overturned. Why? Because of the sin of the people. But there's a day coming, a day of return. Now, this is the same day that Jeremiah talks about. Here, Moses speaks of the circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah, it says, look, in that day, you won't have to teach the law because everybody will know the law. It will be written on their hearts. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, he says that the Lord will... Put his spirit, he will take out a heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Why? So that it may obey. Now, for those of you who are students of the Old Testament, you may be asking yourselves, yeah, but I thought they already came back from exile. Isn't that what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about? Right? Don't they come back? Ezra Nehemiah, building of the wall, right? All that? Yes. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the end of the book of Nehemiah, That's where the real commentary comes. There's so much expectation in the book of Ezra that these promises, the promises in Jeremiah, promises in Ezekiel, promises in Daniel, that they will actually come true in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But when you get to the end, Nehemiah chapter 13, he recounts three failures on the part of the people. Now you may ask yourself, why would he do that? Here's why. It shows that the people... In the second temple period are the same kind of people that were in the first temple period. Now, what we need, what we need is a king who can succeed where all the other kings failed. He could be obedient. What we need is a king who can defeat all of the enemies. What we need, we need a king who can usher in the spirit so that it can change hearts of stone Into hearts of flesh. Uh, What we need. We need a Messiah. Right? That's what we need. Because our story is like Israel's story. We. Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Death. We were by nature children of wrath. Curse. Strangers and aliens on the earth. Exile. That's my story. But you know, here's what I pray for you. I pray that the story of Israel, your story and my story, that it has a good ending. This is the way Moses puts it. In verse 11, he says, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. And in verse 15, Says, see, I set before you today life and good, death and bad. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. Life, blessing, land. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you that this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, listen to his plea. Now, choose life that you may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the story of the Old Testament. It's a story of exile and a story of return of a whole people. The story of the Bible, my story, is a story of exile and return. Now, some of you today, you're in the exile, or at least you feel that you are. And I tell you today, this word has set before you life and good, death and bad. Please choose life.